Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by my co-host, our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Alley. Hello. So Happy warm. Happy spring day. It's been really warm in Chicago, thankfully, after a bitter early spring. So it's a great, great time to be in Chicago. And a great time to be biking like both of us are doing. Exactly. Mark, who is our guest today? Our guest is Charles Amugisha. He's the founder and president of Africa New Life Ministries in Rwanda. He's the founder and chancellor of Africa College of Theology, the largest evangelical theological institution in Rwanda, as well as the lead pastor of New Life Bible Church in Kigali. And he's joining us from Kigali. So I'm really excited about doing this international broadcast. And welcome, Charles. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to do this for you. Absolutely. Where in Kigali are you calling us from? I'm calling from the party of Kigali. Uh, it's called Kichuchiro District. Kigali has three districts, and I'm calling from the Kichuchiro District uh, area of Kigali. 1.2 million people. Wow, that's a pretty big city. It is, yeah. I live in Chicago. Chicago is 2.9, 2.8. So I do like big cities. Well, Let's get into our discussion today, since people are probably wondering why we have someone on from overseas. So over the past two months, authorities have closed more than 7,000 churches across Rwanda for failing to comply with health, safety, and noise regulations. More than 300 of those churches are in the capital city of Kigali. The government isn't clamping down on what it deems to be issues of physical safety. Current laws allow Rwandans to open churches without requiring pastors to go through any training. A new law specific to faith-based organizations will require potential pastors to get a theology degree before they plant a church. With the rise of the prosperity gospel, many people tend to ignore theological training and start churches, said Ezran Manigra, president of the Evangelical Free Church of Rwanda and a leader with the Evangelical Alliance of Rwanda. He supports the government's efforts to, quote, have qualified, trained leaders who know what they are doing and teach right doctrine. Some Christians, however, worry about government interference with religion. President Paul Kagame won a third term last year and has governed for nearly two decades. His administration has been accused of human rights abuses, suppressing political opposition, and clamping down on freedom of speech. Some wonder if his controversial government is extending its reach into church life. So today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss the impact of the government's decision to take a more hands-on approach to the faith community. Before we get into our discussion today, I just want to remind everyone, this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And I wanted to just highlight a piece that we have in our news section that is about a new film that tells this really amazing story of... Christians and Muslims who were taking a bus in Kenya when they got held up by Somali gunmen. And during that time, the Somali gunmen wanted to go out 
and kill all of the Christians who were on this bus. But instead, the Muslims did their best to make it very hard for the gunmen to distinguish who was Christian and who was Muslim and defended the Christians. And now they have turned that into a film, since this is a really remarkable story. The movie itself is called Watu Wot. It's about the power and limits of African and Arab films to kind of help us understand more about interfaith religions. And this article that we published about this, I think, just really gets into the fact that this is not only just a movie, but there's a lot of other like societal impacts that come up when movies like this are released. This is a very volatile topic in a lot of different parts of the world. And so it was really great to read this discussion in our news section that kind of got into some of the nuances of what this relationship looks like in East Africa. So the piece itself is called Sectarian Cinema. Oscars highlight Muslim defense of persecuted Christians because the film was actually nominated for an Oscar. So if you'd like to learn more about this film or if you would like to read this particular article, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen, and there you can become a subscriber. All right, Mark, let us do a gut check. And I'd love you to just tell me what you thought when you heard about the story. Well, uh, mostly when I hear stories like this from a different continent, a different country, and a different culture, I'm at first just mystified because this isn't the type of thing that obviously happens in the U.S. But I do understand that different cultures and different countries have different assumptions about the relationship between church and state. So I guess I was mostly intrigued to find out. I'm really glad we have... uh, Uh, Charles on today to help us kind of separate what of these actions by the government would be considered intrusive and which would be considered, well, that's just something a government's supposed to do. I'd be really interested in how that affects uh, lay people, men and women and boys and girls who go to churches there. Yeah, I think that I'm very interested in this issue as well. I worked on a story a couple years ago about Cuba, and in particular in Cuba, they only allowed, I think, like five or six faiths officially. And one of the things that some of the Cuban leaders they talked about as Cuba was starting to open was that they were nervous that all these cults were going to start appearing in their country that had kind of been like weeded out because the government had been kind of regulating religion for so long. And I just thought that that's something that we don't necessarily think about in the U.S. Like the, just the, there's trade-offs sometimes when it comes to freedom of religion. Not like I don't necessarily think that it is a good thing, but that, you know, in some ways, having this like other body that controls what's being taught can have positive effects on that. So, Charles, we have some questions for you um, to get some more information about what's going on here. I'm wondering if we can start by you telling us about how large the Christian community in Rwanda is. So, really, shout out to the... Christian community in Rwanda is significantly big. Now, I'm talking about the Christian community in Rwanda across church denominations is over 90%. Wow. Across denominations, from Protestants to Catholics and to all the other small denominations and independent churches. Man, the whole idea of Christianity in Rwanda is very spread. What are the major denominations that are there? Uh, the Catholic Church is the largest uh, church in the nation. And the second one is a huge church called Adepel. Adepel is a very old Pentecostal church. 
that has roots from the Swedish Pentecostal churches. It's very well represented across the nation. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists are nearly everywhere. The Anglican Church, the Methodists, the Baptist community is still small. Um, the Presbyterian Church is quite big and well established. And then the number of uh, evangelical independent churches across the nation. Would you say that these churches are, or churches or denominations are divided by class or ethnic group? Definitely no, because the, I know the Catholic Church is, everybody is there. I know the Anglican Church, many Anglican bishops are my friends. Everybody's represented. I know a number of Baptist churches, Methodist churches, evangelical churches, smaller Pentecostal churches. Uh, By the way, the churches in Rwanda are very united. There is an incredible level of unity. I have served on the peace plan, which was initially started by Rick Warren, but now uh, being owned by Rwanda. And when you go to the peace planning meeting, you're going to find Pentecostals, you're going to find evangelical churches, you're going to find Baptists. You're going to find even a Catholic bishop representing the Catholic Church. The church in Rwanda is very much really united. That will be in, in the sense that they are not fighting against each other. So uh, so you'll find in the same church uh, Rwandas who are Hutus and some who are uh, Tutsis? Do they worship together? That is a very strange question to Rwandan people. And it's the kind of question that really doesn't matter anymore in this community after 23, 20 plus years of working on reconciliation to the extent that in Rwanda, every Rwandan has an ID and their ID is written on Rwandan. It's a national identity instead of a tribal identity. When you interview for a job, the job is not determined by your tribe or school or church membership. In fact, when you come in church, the issue of tribe does not even exist uh, because we have people from Zimbabwe, people from Kenya, people from Uganda. In my congregation, I have a German church member, an English church member. The whole idea of tribe, by the way, should not and does not exist in terms of membership in the Church of Rwanda. So I have a question here about the government and the government's involvement with the Rwandan church. When do you remember the government first deciding that it needed to regulate religion? You know, I want to go back to what the government of Rwanda looks like. It's a secular government. As a secular government, their job actually is not to regulate your beliefs. The government regulates licensing of the church, so the church is known. The government also provides them a zoning where churches should be in terms of the zoning of the city. The government also focuses on making sure you have proper facilities like a church building, bathrooms, toilets. Uh, that is what the government 
regulates. Now, the government gets irritated, I would say, when you start preaching the type of American prosperity gospel, which many African preachers are learning on from real American television and YouTube, uh, the government becomes protective of the citizens. If you, a, a church or a preacher begins to manipulate, and that can be investigated rather than really the church determining what you believe or what you teach as the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you start preaching a gospel that is divisive uh, on ethnic lines, that is what the church gets in. I mean, the state will question those kind of situations. So really, most of the times, it's extreme doctrines. It's um, extreme situations where a preacher of recent, we have had a situation of a radio station that was closed or is under process of being closed because the preacher goes on the pulpit and humiliates women. And the, that cannot be tolerated in this culture where a preacher humiliates women in the public and calls them a temptation or, or, or a source of trouble within the community, those would be the situation in this secular state where the government can be involved. But most of the times you have the freedom to preach the gospel, make sure you don't make noise to your neighbor who wants to sleep, make sure <laughs> your cars... And that, and that happens? They end up being too loud? Oh yes, they make it like they, they really churches can I mean some churches can be too loud. I mean you can find a church of let's say uh, fifty people, but the the amount of sound in that place is enough for seven hundred people. So as as Kigali becomes a city and people are living next to each other and the churches are located within the communities or the neighborhood. Even your fellow Christians will complain about your church <laughs> making a lot of noise. And they will call police to come and help them. Now, I'm an Anglican. I can't imagine Anglicans making a lot of noise. Would that be true of Anglicans there as well? Oh, yes. African Anglicans are different. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, our, you know, it's all about the type of music, really. If, if you are singing in a typical... English way, you can't make a lot of noise playing an organ. But if you are actually playing drums and you have a guitar and you are singing from a very African traditional uh, style of singing, you're actually going to make noise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll have to experience that someday. You have to control that noise to a level that's comfortable. And basically what they are saying is that you shouldn't be hard. They are trying to say, make sure the level of your noise does not blow up people's eardrums. Because today you can have a ministry of preaching and 10 years from now, you may need a ministry of healing eardrums. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
So uh, it sounds like most of the churches that have been closed, would that be your opinion, that most of the churches have been closed for legitimate governmental reasons, health, safety, and noise regulations? You know, I, I would tell you frankly that, yeah, definitely, yes. Churches have been closed either lack of soundproof or lack of bathrooms, like they don't have clean bathrooms, or they can potentially fall down on people. I mean, I've seen personal videos of sanctuaries that would uh, really, really terrify you if you also decided to enter that building. Now, having said that, since the government started regulating, and you asked the question, when did the government begin regulating? Uh, my is that about maybe six, seven years, the government did not start with the churches. The government started with the regulations in the area of zoning, cleaning up the city. In Rwanda, you'd actually build a house anywhere without basically hygiene standards in a home and live there. I know that is typically the traditional African life. But about seven years ago, the government started modernizing the city and the communities, encouraging communities to build toilets, to clean up their neighborhood. I remember about seven years ago, a community worker coming to my home to ask me what am I going to do to improve my home this year. Uh, that moved on to businesses, businesses, pubs, they all had to have parking space, uh, clean toilets, and that has now moved on to the churches. The, in the church area, it is something new, and I think that's why this is making a lot of noise, uh, because traditional governments would be afraid of coming to churches to asking them to clean up their toilets. Uh, but I think taking a, a step of boldness to come into our, our areas to ask us to clean up our buildings, clean up our toilets, um, manage sound. And this is being done across all churches. Catholic churches have been closed. Mosques have been closed. Protestant churches, small evangelical churches, many extreme denominational churches. I mean, everybody has been touched. That shows you how much need was there within the church community for us to clean up. And we are cleaning up. It also sounds like your country is experiencing a lot of urbanization and a lot of people are moving to the cities right now. That is the problem. That is the problem, that people are moving from rural areas. Religious leaders are moving from the rural areas. And that doesn't work where you have thousands of people compacted in small areas. You actually have to learn to live together in a small area. And to do that, there are guidelines and zoning issues that have to be established. Help us understand, does the Rwandan constitution, what does it say about freedom of religion? Oh, the, the Rwandan constitution is 100% in 
uh, provides the freedom of worship. There is nothing in the Rwandan constitution which can ever hinder anyone from worshiping God the way he wants to worship. So really, the government is not regulating faith. The government is regulating common sense. How do you feel like it is the same or different from the American constitution? It's really very hard to compare Rwanda to America. Uh, you are talking about mm-hmm. two different cultures. But when it, ta- when it gets to freedom of worship, I really wouldn't see any difference between America and Rwanda. The only difference I would see is that the American lifestyle is already advanced. Your mayor doesn't have to ask you to build toilets in the church or provide parking because anyway, worshippers won't come if you don't have a toilet or parking. So the American church is not entering into those physical infrastructures because they are readily available within your communities. Whereas here, uh, you have the freedom of worship, but you don't have the freedom of not having toilets and providing a secure environment for your worshipers. So people can easily interpret that as a government infringing on freedom of worship. But my perception would be the government is actually making our worship centers and areas more healthy. The government is actually ahead of the church in terms of prescribing what we need, which you guys in America don't have. I mean, if you don't have toilets in America, people won't come. If you don't have a building, <laughs> they won't come. But here they're going to come anyway. It's a different way of thinking uh, because the country is in early processes of, in many ways, you're reinforcing basic healthy hygienic needs for the people they don't even understand. And you know, the government is coming from a background. You, you know, many, many people were killed in churches during the genocide. Because of that kind of background whereby people would be lied by their priests to come and hide themselves in the church and then take advantage by inviting the killers to come and kill them from the church, that is our history, that in sometimes there have been issues of cred- credibility, lack of credibility within the religious community. Therefore, in Rwanda, the government looks at the church really with a more intense eye to make sure that the past never gets repeated within the church. And that's a, big, that's a big embarrassment to all of us religious leaders. Why would something like a genocide happen within a church community? It's, it's a terrible thing. So some of what is happening within the church here is self-inflicted because of our lack of integrity in the past. 
So the church, the current church in Rwanda, the younger church, we are rebuilding the church and rebuilding the integrity of the church at the moment. Could you actually talk more about this? It sounds like then that the genocide was obviously a crisis for the entire country and a tragedy for the entire country, but was really a crisis for the church as well. It was a crisis for the church. I want you to imagine this nation was over 90% Christian. So in a nation that's over 90% Christian, how can you have over 10% of the population killed in the genocide? Peter killing John and Matthew killing John Bosco. I mean, it is a tragedy. And this happened within the church, which proves that Rwanda was baptized, but not evangelized and discipled. What happened afterwards with this relationship between pastors and priests and lay Christians? We've been going through a massive process of reconciliation and forgiveness. Some real church leaders have come out and they've said, we are sorry for what happened. Even the Pope himself of recent confessed. When our president, His Excellency Paul Kagame, visited him for the church having failed its own church members and people being killed in the church. So there have been a lot of confessions, re- uh, requests for forgiveness. Forgiveness has been offered, and an amazing level of healing is taking place in this nation, something I've never seen before, whereby a perpetrator of the genocide actually lives in the same neighborhood with the family he killed and has been forgiven and set free and done with his sentence in prison. You think God is really working then, yeah? You know, God is working in this country. God is working in this country. But there's much more that needs to be done. I would think, yes, yeah, something that tragic and that with that large, it's, it, it's going to take more than 23 years, but it does sound like some remarkable progress has been made on something that it's just unimaginable that people could continue to live with each other with a sense of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I'm glad to hear it's happening, at least in many parts of the country. That's just amazing from my perspective. You know, it's a miracle. I sometimes think about it and I can't comprehend it. But, you know, it happens. These communities are living together again. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. I talked with Tom Schreiner, one of the translators of the Christian Standard Bible, about why it's better to do Bible translation in a group. I would say it's much better to do a committee. Um, Because a solo project, there's too many things that you would uh, not see individually. It's so helpful to have other minds, other people working on the project. Obviously, we couldn't include every denomination, but we had Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Bible Church, Anglicans. So not only more than one person, but people from different backgrounds, males, females. So I I think that's important. One person, you're just too limited and you see things a certain way and then someone else raises an objection or a question or another interpretation that you haven't thought of. 
So a, a single Bible translation, I think it can be great in many ways. But, but I think there's wisdom in a committee. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So from what I understand, the government is also going to be introducing a law that requires anyone who's a Christian teacher to go to seminary. Is that correct? The law is in the pipeline. It's being proposed. Obviously, it has to be approved by the parliament and later on by the Senate. But yes, it's being approved. And what they're asking is that the main leader of a ministry or a church denomination should have a minimum of a bachelor's degree. Then if he does not have a bachelor's degree in theology, but has any other degree, university degree, he can do training for six months to have an understanding of theology and the Bible before he really becomes the main leader of the organization. It is not being applied to every Bible teacher in terms of the level of a university education. But my guess is that the rest of the teachers in the community will need to have a level of certification in terms of understanding their theology and what they teach. Basically, that is coming from a number of churches that in the past, even up to now, have taught false doctrine, false teachings that are actually contrary to even common sense. So will the, will the government be responsible for deciding what's uh, bad teaching and what's good teaching, or is that something the local churches will decide? Uh, the government is known to responsible. Now, the government is responsible for common sense, see? And <laughs> a basic understanding within the community. Uh, I mean, someone can't stand up and start teaching that if you want to be healed, eat a snake. <laughs> that is common sense. 
Um, if you want to be rich, go sell your house and put your kids on the street and bring the money to the church. That is common sense. Uh, the government understands that. But you know, we have forums of churches. For example, the Catholics have their own forum. The many Protestant churches have their forum. That by a number of evangelists, there's the Evangelical Alliance, there's the Forum of Born Again Churches. So basically, churches are creating or have created systems to regulate false teachings within their communities or denominations. So it would be up to these associations to tell the government that such and such a preacher is, uh, is preaching false doctrine? Really, those forums don't even have to tell the government. They have to regulate themselves. I see. It's not a report. It's not, there's no reporting guideline or doctrine to the government. The government, in fact, they've spoken to us. They said, guys, we are not really here to regulate what you teach. We are regulating public safety. We are regulating that you don't take advantage of a basic Rwandan person. In fact, by the way, for your information, for most of the churches that were closed, many of them have been cleaned and reopened. Many, many churches by Easter were already reopened. The people have been working hard to clean up. When you come to Rwanda, you're going to see nice-looking churches, clean churches. With clean bathrooms. That's good. Yes, clean bathrooms. So you mentioned earlier that prosperity gospel has been recently coming to the country, often from American teachers and preachers. When did you start seeing that arrive in Rwanda? Well, you know, in, in, in small measures, this thing has been here for like, what, over 20, like 20 years? It's been very oppressed. Uh, Rwandan people are, are very selective in what they tend to believe. And most of this teaching has been around, but not very much accepted in Rwanda because of the nature, obviously, of the government here, you just can't start stealing money from people and think you are going to go free taking <laughs> people's money, promising them that don't exist. But the elements have been there. But more predominantly, I think we've seen a growth in this whole area of the prosperity gospel. My guess will be like in the last maybe eight years, more seriously in the last five years, you know, the more we get modernized and more exposed to the internet and YouTube and television, that's how this kind of teaching gets into these third world countries. So do a lot of people there watch uh, TBN? Are you familiar with that t television station? You know, they watch Valiasi television stations more than, I mean, the number of televisions, nearly anything you guys can watch in terms of Christian television in America, we can see here. Yeah, there's only, a, a, for the most part in America, the type of uh, Christianity that's displayed on television is for the most part a, a, a kind of a narrow slice of American Christianity, but it t does tend toward the more Pentecostal to 
prosperity gospel variety. So that would be the main thing people are watching, I would think, and they're not they're not getting the full the full uh, dimension of what it means to be a Christian in the states anyway. You know, and that's unfortunate because the America is full of amazing Bible teachers. I mean, I've been to American seminaries, great, great Bible teachers, and amazing churches that preach the truth of the gospel, but those churches are not on television. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's, that's not good. I wish more of those churches gospel so that uh, the rest of the world can have a more balanced picture of what American Christianity looks like. Do you mention that you know Rick Warren? Can you tell us a little bit about how you met him? Oh, I met Rick Warren in Rwanda. He has done a number of trainings here. You know the Purpose Dream Life book? Mm-hmm. We've done it for days of us in Rwanda. We've had a very extensive training in the area of Purpose Driven Church. He has done a number of trainings really moving the Rwandan church in the area of discipleship through a number of classes. And so the Rwandan church has been trained in that area. And Rick Warren has had a big influence here trying to move the Rwandan church from just preaching, but moving on to creating discipleship movements, including cell group churches and communities. Do you know how he first got connected to people in your country? Uh, my guess is that there is an American businessman who introduced him to Rwanda. And then the businessman gave his book, The Purpose Driven Life, to our president to read. And the president loved the book. He said, wow, this man is a man of purpose like me. So he invited him to come to Rwanda and speak to churches and church leaders. Oh, so Rick Warren knows President Kagame? Oh, yes. Rick Warren knows President Kagame. Rich Warren, Rick Warren knows, my guess would be, the majority of the key leaders in terms of the religious in churches here in Rwanda. He knows the Catholic Archbishop. Bishop. He knows he, he has... <laughs> He mastered himself and his teams for a number of years in Rwanda, teaching discipleship and leadership across the nation. Wow, that's very and interesting. Sending teams uh, to train churches on assisting the poor, training the next, educating the next generation, planting purpose-driven churches. Yes, Rick Warren is a friend of Rwanda and the people of Rwanda. Wow. Yeah, he's your friend too, right? You have a picture. We we saw pictures of you with him. Yeah, he's my friend. He's a good guy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this really intense conversation. Is there anything that you would ask that American Christians or other Christians from around the world who are listening to this podcast, how they could pray for the Christians in your country? Uh, number one, I would like uh, the rest of the world uh, to understand uh, that there's no persecution in Rwanda for the church. That should get out of the conversation. There is no persecution. Number two, I would do really call upon churches across the world to assist us building better facilities within these communities. I would even say more than churches, but community centers where churches can can meet. And then 
that's the kind of assistance needed in Rwanda right now uh, to build and create healthy environments for worship. And then number three, I want to ask you, churches and theological seminaries around the world to join hands with us to train pastors across the nation. I think the whole request by the government for us to train our pastors is an awesome responsibility. And any church leader or theologian would say, yes, let's go ahead and, and solve the problem and provide training for every Rwandan pastor beyond what the government is requesting. Number four, pray for us as we pray for you. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of this with us. Thank you. All right. So if anyone has feedback for this podcast and wants to respond to all of this really interesting information that Charles has given us, you can offer us that feedback at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy right now. I will start. Okay, so my precious moment is recently I had some friends over for dinner, and I eat dinner with these friends pretty frequently, which is awesome. But I had no furniture in my house because my roommate was moving out, and my new roommate hadn't moved in with her furniture yet. So we ended up sitting on pillows on the floor and eating our food in the house, which was very hilarious that that happened, but also really fun to to get to do that with them. And I'm just like really grateful for these friends that I've had. We've been eating dinner together for almost six months now. Most of the time it's on Sunday nights. And too often I will have to say that I end up eating dinner by myself or eating dinner in between things. And so it's always a real gift to just sit and take a couple of hours with people on Sunday nights and have a much longer time to laugh and converse and catch up and to start my week off like that. Um, People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Charles, what is something that has brought you joy recently? Going to the gym uh, at least once a week. Uh, my life can be extremely busy. I spend most of the time in the church and within the Christian community doing counseling and taking care of projects and people. So recent I've started going to the gym and that gym moment is precious for me because I stopped thinking about all my work and just to have time, me time alone. Gradually, I'm making new friends at the gym. And most of these new friends are not Christians. So basically, I'm crossing from just being insulated in the church every day and making friends out there in the marketplace. For a pastor, that is beautiful. What is your favorite thing to do at the gym? There is a machine. I don't know how to describe the machine. You know, this is a new venture for me. And it's a machine. I mean, it's like you are pumping the machine. You keep pumping it up, down, up, down. <laughs> it stretches my thigh. It's really cool. Like yesterday, I was telling the guy at the gym, this is the best machine for me ever. This is the elliptical? 
addiction. It kind of pushes you. You go up, it yes. brings you down. You go up, it brings you down. That <laughs> is the machine. That is the best machine for me. So you you just go to the gym, you get on the elliptical. Do you put some music on? I haven't been able to put the music on because my internet on the phone is very slow. Okay. So I've tried it, but it, I don't get the full the full the full music. So I watch television, and and yesterday I was watching soccer, and it's interesting how soccer has been commercialized and spread all over the whole world. Is Rwanda playing in the World Cup? No, Rwanda is not yet playing in the World Cup. But, you know, everyone in Rwanda loves soccer. Kids play soccer on the street, in schools. We are all hooked on television when it's time for soccer. They know all these teams around the world, from Manchester to Liverpool. It's amazing. (laughs) All these coaches, there's uh, soccer players. They know them by name. It's like they're talking to their neighbor. Mm Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Well, if it makes you feel any better about the World Cup, the United States doesn't have a team in the World Cup either. Oh, okay. That makes me feel good. <laughs> now, Rwanda has been in the African Cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So maybe one day get up there. I'm cheering for you guys to make it. All right, Charles, do you have a website that people can go to to learn more about you? Yes. Uh, my website is uh, africannewlife.org. All right. Okay, Mark, do you want to share yours? Yeah. Mine is uh, both a precious moment and an unprecious moment. That is to say, I I took out my golf clubs for the first time in many months yesterday and went out there, hit a bucket of balls, practiced some putting, and I thought everything was doing pretty well until I woke up this morning. And even though I've been working out regularly, as the listeners of Quick to Listen know, both with weights and aerobics, I was so sore this morning. It was amazing. So it's good to be sore with new muscles. Basically, I'm I'm using muscles I haven't been using in this other stuff. So uh, it is fun to get back into the golf season. I have a friend here at work, George, who we we try to play together. And I'm looking forward to our mutual teasing each other as we're out on the course. Your framing of this leads to a good question about whether there is actually an opposite to a precious moment. Unprecious? (laughs) Unprecious moment, yeah. (laughs) A depressing moment. Well, the depressing moment was, yeah, you're old. Yep. Suck it up. Despair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, Precious you have to take, moment or the second yeah, of despair. Yeah, you still have to take ibuprofen even when you play golf. Mark, do you want to tell people about your newsletter? My newsletter is called The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. It's a weekly newsletter that uh, in which I link to articles I find interesting, make some comments, and apparently the people that read it find it interesting because they keep telling me that. So maybe you will too. That is it for us this week. Thank you again for everyone who listened to another episode of Quick to Listen. One way that you support this show is by going to Apple Podcasts and writing a review of the show and giving it five stars. That is outstanding. And thank you to everyone who has listened to the show and done that. We truly appreciate all of you guys. You can find this podcast, as mentioned, on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or Stitcher. Most places where you get your podcasts, we are going to be there. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred, and we will see you all next week.